This episode of Better in the Dark is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audiblepodcast.com slash betterinthedark. Over 85,000 titles to choose from for your iPod or MP3 player. Sign up for a free 40-day trial, including a free download of your first book just for trying out their service. Some of the available titles include Toys by James Patterson, The Masks of Darkness by Patricia Hall, and James Bond, The Authorized Biography by John Pearson. So after you finish listening to BITD, why don't you go to www.audiblepodcast.com slash better in the dark and get your free audiobook today. Hi there, sports fans. I'm Dr. Goldfoot. In this world, there are good people and bad people. <laughs> Three guesses as to which side I'm on. <laughs> we all feel better. We all feel better in the dark. In conclusion, if you find yourself falling asleep, having a dream child in the middle of a nightmare, while you're trying to wake up when you're being chased by a guy with razors on his fingers, and you don't know it's a new nightmare, and then you got Jason, he's got an axe, got Kelly rolling, she's not saying, nightmare baby, nightmare baby, nightmare baby. H Y. Once upon a time on a Super Bowl night, two guys from BK brought the points to life. Gave you some previews and some laughs. Was it no big thing? No one thought it would last. Then one started growling at the mention of a chick. The other guy would lose it every time he got pissed. Next thing you know, they got a good fan base. So they said, what the hell? Let's continue to pace. No stone uncovered. They will take on a topic. Might bring on a guest and together they rock it. Cause they're in like Flint. Two mices are cool. If you don't know the beautiful one, they'll take you to school. I'm talking about Tom, DJ, and Derek Ferguson. The best podcast out, hands down, it's set. So in the tub, in the car, if you're chilling in the park. Welcome to another show of Better in the Dark. Of course, what they really are are the incredible products of my walking tricks. You see, each one of these beauties is equipped with what is known in the profession, in my profession, uh, with a proximity fuse. Just get too close and have too many right or wrong vibrations and poof! A wonderful explosion that destroys... Not only my girl bombs, but they're victims as well. And until we get back in touch with you... Go watch that movie! Right, Devin? Go watch that movie! <laughs> it's time for another Rival of Bonds pop quiz. What do the following people have in common? Diana Ross, Fabian, Frankie Avalon, and Enrico Morricone. Mario Baba. Yes. Oh, okay, cool. Because all four of these people provided music. Well, one isn't really a series because it's just one movie. Right. But the one series and the one standalone movie that we're doing, and of the three that we're discussing, two of them were directed by Mario Bava. Right. And this is actually, in fact, just an excuse for Derek and I to talk about Mario Bava, who was a great, great man. Absolutely. One of the premier architects of the Italian giallo genre of horror movies. The great thing about Bava is that people just think of him as like one of the grandfathers of Italian horror films. Even more so 
than some of the other Italian directors that we're going to talk about and we're going to talk about in the future as we're going to learn when we get to the listener mail in a mm-hmm. few moments. Mm-hmm. Bava was all over the place. One week he would do a Hercules Peplum movie. Yeah. The next week he would do what they call a policia. Yeah, one of the crime dramas. And as we see, he was also keen if somebody said, Hey, Mario, you want to do a comedy? Okay, I'm a cover over. I am bringing my camera. <laughs> and he was also responsible directly for the careers of two other great Italian directors mm-hmm. who we've discussed in Better in the Dark, Dario Argento, Argento yeah. and, of course, his son, Lamberto Bava. Lem- right. But we've talked about Mario Bava when we did the Dario Argento yes. episode. Mm-hmm. We dropped his name quite a few times. And we also talked about him at some length when we talked about Dino De Laurentiis. Yeah. Here we're going to go deep with two of his films. And probably reference some of his other ones. Yeah. The short summary, know this as we go into this episode, even though it's a Rivals of Bond episode, we like Mario Bava. Yes, we do. So, I'm Tom DJ. And I'm Derek Ferguson. And in case you didn't realize, we are back to the Rivals of Bond series on Better in the Dark. Right. We managed to find a spy series that was on Netflix streaming, and since... Bava directed the second of these two films. We decided, you know what would be cool? Let's tack Danger Diabolic, a film that Derek and I both love, right. onto it so we can discuss it as one big, nice little package. Yeah, it's one nice big little Is this wrapping up the Rivals of Bond series? or do we? Have For the time work? being, the Rivals of Bond series at this point, because so much of the stuff we want to cover isn't available... Yeah. Let's put it this way. We're going to put it in the little draw along with the corpse of the human target. But by all means, if you guys have any suggestions for a movie that you think would come under the heading of The Rival yeah. Bond, you are hardly recommended to send us your suggestions on our message board or through Facebook. Mm-hmm. The contact information of which Tom will be good enough to provide you with at the, the end, end of this episode. That's right. But before we go any further, so we don't want to get into a situation like we did in the last episode we recorded. Listener mail. Be, even before the listener mail, I was about to say that Better in the Dark is still brought to you by Audible.com. Yay! For all your Audible MP3 listening needs. Audiobook needs. Yeah! You can get a free audiobook at www.audiblepodcast.com slash better in the dark just for signing up for a 14 day trial. There's over 85,000 titles to choose from for your iPod or MP3 player, and as always, I went in and decided to look for three suggestions for books you can download from Audible.com. For example, you can download the Edgar Allan Poe collection, narrated by the great, great man Vincent Price. Mm. In case you're wondering, this is a return. We're going to be talking about the great, great man for the third time. Actually, the fourth time. I forgot that first Halloween episode where we talked about House of Haunted Hill. Yeah. You could... Download The Android's Dream by John Scalzi, narrated by Mr. Wesley Crusher himself, Will Wheaton. Oh, cool. And finally, you can download Go Long, My Journey Beyond the Game and Fame by Jerry Rice. I'm not even going to ask how that applies to what we're talking about. Because the first film we're going to talk about takes place in San Francisco. And what is Jerry Rice known for? Mm. Being the wide receiver of the San Francisco 49ers. That's what she said. (laughs) Jerry Rice, who is my favorite football player of all time. You're right. Who isn't a Jet. There's one other football player who I hold in higher regard who is a Jet. Joe Namath? No. Curtis Martin. Okay. Who did not make the Hall of Fame this year, which 
disappointed me. But there's always next year. The fourth most rushing yards in the history of the NFL. Real quick, because at the time that we're recording this, folks, you ought to know, we didn't mention it in the other episode that we recorded, but this is the first time I'm seeing my friend yeah. in two months. We haven't seen each mm-hmm. other at all. Because of personal stuff, we weren't able to record our traditional Super Bowl yeah. anniversary episode, one which will make up our promise. But since we haven't, what did you think of the Super Bowl? Because I watched it even though we weren't watching it I was together. in that weird situation where no matter who won, I'd be happy. Yeah, right. Because if the Steelers won, they would take away some something that the team from New England holds up as something that they're unique in and that they won three Super Bowls in the course of a decade. But more importantly, the Green Bay Packers, if they won, which they did, it would be a giant fuck you (laughs) to the penis mailer. I had this picture when they won of that little selfish idiot sitting on his tractor in Kiln, Mississippi, touching his hair and pulling it out at the roots, going, no! Mm-hmm. Realizing that if he had just been a good team player mm-hmm. and had agreed to be second string to Aaron Rodgers for two, three years, he would have had a second Super Bowl ring, which he would is what he ring. wanted all along. He would have had another ring. Also, every Super Bowl could be improved by having Sam Elliott show up to introduce the teams. My impression of the, had nothing to yeah. do with the players. Yeah. But yeah, once Sam Elliott was finished introducing the teams, mm-hmm. I said, that's it, show's over. Yeah. Only thing could have made it better? Yes. Having Helen Mirren show up at Halftime <laughs> and massacre <laughs> the Halftime show with a machine what with an automatic... What the fuck was that thing? It was like watching a special needs high school class putting on a pageant version of Dino De Laurentiis' Flash Gordon. In the middle of the thing, they should have had Helen Mirren with an automatic weapon popping up and just massacring. I guarantee you, the audience would have exploded. <laughs> People would have loved it. Now, let me say something. And yes. I'm saying this as a Black Eyed Peas fan. Yeah. I have never seen them give such a bad performance. Oh, it was unwatchable. It, it was a lousy halftime show. What was show. that thing that Fergie was wearing? Where did they lower them from? The big deal, when that stadium was first opened, the big controversy was that Jerry Jones put this massive, massive widescreen television on the 50-yard line. Oh, okay. The whole idea, he always says, I want a stadium so big that God can watch his favorite team every Sunday. Good ambition. Uh, Jerry, I don't think God is a Dallas Cowboys fan. At least not anymore. Oh, who knows? Have you seen the Dallas Cowboys play? No. It's not pretty. Okay. They probably lowered them from the struts. Mm -hmm. that support that massive, massive screen. Because what was happening was that during the preseason, beyond a certain point, whenever they would kick off the ball to the other team, Mm -hmm. sometimes the ball would get stuck up there. Oh, wow. Or would bounce off the screen. But speaking of the Super Bowl, our first piece of listener mail Mm -hmm. is tied in to a certain bet we had that involved the team that won. Okay. Just let me say one thing and then we'll get to that. Just like we said before, every movie ever made could be immensely improved by doing two things. Yes. One, at some point in the movie, you have Helen Mirren show up just firing machines. And two, you have Sam Elliott narrate what happened yes. in the movie at the end. Right. A la the Big Lebowski. And you know. After watching Company of Wolves in preparation for the obscure movies episode yesterday, I'd like to add having Terrence Stamp has the devil show up in a white Rolls Royce. Just drive through with his little rat skull. And that's it, and just show up. Yeah. 
And I agree with you 100%. That should be a staple of every Super Bowl. They have Sam Elliott yes. introduce the team. See, they could have Karen Stamp give the guns to Helen Mirren in every movie. Drive in, give her the gun. She machine guns a bunch of people, and then she goes out. Don't have to have any explanation. Just have Helen Mirren show up and machine gun um, ass load of people. And I'm willing to accept even just like a little poster screen screen at like the bottom right-hand corner mm. of every rom-com of just Helen Mirren just going... <laughs> There you go. And so now we go on to the listener mail. Yes, and we're going to start with a little voicemail from our good, good friends, Sam and Will at The Gentleman's Guide. Oh. This is, of course, where they get to reveal what we have to record. For those of the listeners who were so neglectful that they didn't listen to the episode, do you want to recount the sad series of events that have led us to this low point in our career, Thomas? Now, I very much am good friends with Sam and Will. Sam is a diehard Steelers fan. Will is a diehard Green Bay Packers fan. I'm on Facebook talking to Will, and I say, we're playing each other this year. Let's have a bet. And Will said, that sounds like fun. That's what she said. (laughs) Helen Mirren. And the idea was we were betting on the New York Jets Green Bay Packers game. And whoever's team won gets to choose movies for the other team's show. Now, mind you folks, you guys have been listening to this. You know I know zero about football. So I got to go along with my partner on this. And he says, don't worry about it. I'm going to pick the winner. I say, Tom, you sure we got this in the bag? Because I don't want to be reviewing Pippi Longstock. He says, yes, Derek, I got this. Don't worry. I got this. (laughs) At the time, if I recall, the Jets' record... Was eight you would sit with a cigar in your yeah. mouth, feet up on the desk. I got this, Derek. Yeah. Don't worry about this. It was eight and one. <laughs> they had that terrible loss to the Ravens in the first week, and then proceeded to win every single game after that. How was I to know, though, that for some reason the 2011 Jets team had this weakness? It was called time off. Every time the Jets had time off, it would be as if a magic portal opened up and the team from 2006, where they went 4-12, and would show up in its place. And Mark Sanchez would be possessed by the spirit of Brooks Bollinger, who was the worst quarterback I think the Jets have ever had. And so, of course, they lost. It was something like nine to three. It was a very tough game, but they still they lost, and this is what and as a consequence, we lost. Yes. So this is what Will and Sam would like to say. Tom, Derek, Better in the Dark. Uh, hello, this is, of course, Large William, and across the border from me is my dear friend and co-host, uh, the Samurai. Yeah! No, that's not, actually, that's not the right side of it. How's it going, guys? Uh, to my, yeah, so anyway, uh, I was going to make a joke that would have made me sound a bit foolish there. I'll abstain. The reason for our uh, voicemail, much delayed, of course, we like to be fashionably late. Um, but in any event, uh, this is, of course, uh, our voicemailer, MP3, is done because you guys lost a bet with us. My Packers beat your Jets. Now, you see, there was talk that you guys were going to give us movies of gentle proportions to cover on our show. You see, we are gentlemen, not just in name, but in execution of, of our bets. Yes. We've decided to abstain. Mm-hmm. Just shitty films. Yeah, abstain from shitty films, but not abstain from love. Whatever that's that right. Is. 
Um, now, you came within uh, a punati hair of reviewing Frankenhood and something else on your show. Oh, man. But uh, we decided we're going to be nice. We want to spread the love about Eurocrime films. Anyone who listens to our show knows how much we love Eurocrime. And we figured what better way to introduce some of your listeners, and if you guys aren't as familiar with them, than to start out with a master trilogy. That is, of course, Fernando de Leo's seminal work, The Emilio Trilogy, uh, starring Henry Silva, Mario Waydorf, uh, uh, Gaston Mosquin, etc., etc. We're going to get these guys over to you. It's timely, too, because Herrero is releasing them Region 1. So if people like what you have to say and like what we said, uh, then they can get them. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait to hear another show about these films because uh, they're so great. So much fun to talk about. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, We we were a gentleman, true to form. Mm -hmm. We hope you guys enjoy them. We're very keen to listen to the episode. And uh, hopefully I won't listen uh, that day when you record. Hopefully it'll be because the green and gold is facing the black and gold in the Super Bowl. Right, there you go. And uh, now we're going to grab our bomber jackets, our white scarves, and our berets and hit the road. So (laughs) we'll say adios. Adios. full disclosure let me inform you good folks at home listening to this of the other part of the story now these are true gentlemen I, that's why it's called the gentleman's guide I, to cinema i respect them and i honor them because you guys know me and i was gonna be a total shit heel about this and we won i was going to deliberately pick the shittiest eye gougingest movie possible mm-hmm. for them to review well, we might as well How, say what it was. However, Tom didn't have to inform him I was going to do this. <laughs> he went away and said, oh, Derek, this is what we it. would have given yeah, Big well, Will and Tell him, what were we going to give him? You had chosen I Know Who Killed Me, yeah, the yeah. Lindsay Lohan horror film where she stars as a stripper who doesn't take her clothes off yep. with a wooden leg. Yeah. Which I've seen, and my God, that thing is brutal. And I had chosen, mainly because I know that Big Will and the Samurai like Italian movies, Mm -hmm. and they like Joe Spinell. As you and I have talked about in a previous episode of Better in the Dark, Joe Spinell is a good guy, and Carolyn Monroe. I was going to give them the first film that Carolyn Monroe and Joe Spinelli had worked on together, Star Crash. Right, okay. Which isn't as bad. I was looking for something so they wouldn't hate us for the rest of their lives. Now see, if I really wanted to be mean to them, you know what I'd have picked? What would you have picked? I'd have picked the Blue Lagoon. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, tell me about it. If I really wanted to be nasty about it. Are these movies they're talking about, are they available on Netflix? They're supposed to have been released at the beginning of this month, but now they're saying that the release date is going to be March 16th. Okay. You can put them on your queue right now. They're in the save category. Okay. If they move it back again, Will has offered to send us digital files. Oh, cool. Of the three films. All this right. is the Malou trilogy by uh, Francesco De Leo, which stars Woody Strode and Henry Silva has the prototype mm. for the characters that John Travolta and Samuel Jackson played in Pulp Fiction. Mm. Okay, cool. Well, so, when we get ready to do that, yeah. And we will do that. Yeah, we are going to do that. I'm thinking that a good time to do this might be to do it as part of the kickoff for the Summer of Fun 2011. Sounds good to me. Unless Will and Sam want their pound of flesh earlier. 
we'll see. We have two pieces of written listener mail before oh, we begin okay. that Bava love. First off is from our good friend, Mr. Ron Fortier. Hey, Ron. And he writes, Hi, Tom and Derek. I have to tell you, gentlemen, your 100th show lived up to all my expectations from start to finish. Any podcast covering films would discuss things as diverse as Justice League animated movies to Deep Space Nine, <laughs> the Thin Man series to genius director Fritz Lang has my complete and internal gratitude, support, and loyalty. And that one of my little fan letters made its way to the recording was icing on the cake for this movie buff. The only truly sad note was in listening to the show on the same day I learned of the death of film music composer John Barry. Barry's music was simply beautiful, and he is clearly assured a place in film history for his truly lush romantic scores. Should you two ever do an episode on the great film composers, give me a holler, please. That's it. Again, congratulations from the heart. Here's anxious awaiting the second hundred episodes. Ron. P.S. Now a podcaster myself on the weekly comics-related Zone 4 show. I will be giving Better in the Dark a shout-out soon. This kind of achievement needs to be applauded everywhere in the podcasting world. Wow. First you. off, thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. And can we pull behind a little bit the curtain away for a little bit and reveal that we've talked to Ron about coming on and doing an episode discussing the work of the great Mr. Barry? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Matter of fact, a whole episode about great composers yeah. such as Bernard Herrmann and mm-hmm. John Williams and... And the man we're about to praise today, Enrico Morricone. Yeah, Morricone, yeah, of course. Most people nowadays, when you talk about we composers and James Horner. James Horner died? Didn't he pass away? But if he didn't, well, he certainly is a great composer. Yes. A lot of people, when you say movie composers, all they think about, oh, well, John Williams. Well, John Williams is great. There's no denying that. He did one of my favorite ones, 1941. But he's not the only one. Then there's people like Howard Shore. Howard Shore. David Cronenberg's longtime collaborator. Mm -hmm. People like Graham Revel. People like John Ottman, who I know is a favorite of Michael Bailey. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people out there. The orchestral score is dying out, as Ron and you and I discussed in episode 99, mm-hmm. when we were talking about Pulp Heroes. Yeah. And it's kind of sad because now it's all about product. Let's put out the soundtrack with the 15 different hip-hop guys. Mm-hmm. In period yeah. pieces that they make you still find the orchestral type of thing. And movies like... Oh, if I had to choose, and I know this is going to be a weird, weird choice for a lot of people, if I had to choose one person who's my absolute favorite composer, someone whose work I used to pick up even I'd ever heard of the film, Mark Isham. Oh, yeah. Who was, oh, once again, another one who usually is associated with one director. In this David case, Lynch. Alan. I was thinking actually Alan Rudolph. Ah, okay, yeah. Who I is say another yeah. person we have to get around to one of these days. Alan Rudolph. Yeah. Alan Rudolph. Absolutely. It's a shame that Alan Rudolph has not done a film since 2002. Really? Man, that blows. That sucks and blows. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, we're going to be doing that with Ron. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Michael Bailey, as we did a few seconds ago, okay. our final piece of listener mail is from Michael Bailey. Tell him he ain't getting his 20 bucks back. Uh, okay. Michael writes... <laughs> this is a case of that's what he's writing Okay. For. I love fighting games. So... Love fighting games. Who gives a rat's ass? Many a teenage weekend or school break was spent at the arcade playing Street Fighter II and World Heroes. I was not much of a console player at the time, but occasionally my friend Peter Dennis and I would rent one when I was in college, and we did indeed play Eternal Champions. Yay! Love fighting games. For our first or second Christmas, Rachel and I got a PlayStation 1, and one of the games we got was Marvel vs. Capcom. I gleefully played Captain America beating the ever-loving crap out of M. Bison because that's what being an American is all about! Absolutely. You can read this on Better in the Dark if you want, but this was just another one of those things that makes me realize why we're friends. 
Michael. Well, thank you, Michael. And of course, you can check out, Michael has many podcasts. I have been a guest a number of times on what is probably... Is he still married? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but you know why I say that? Because I know how many podcasts he has. Yeah. And I know it takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of time. We just do yeah. his little podcast. So right. I can imagine how long it takes him to do he, all of his other podcasts. The one, I've been a guest on, using the long box a number of times. We just right. finished doing the two-parter covering Underworlds Unleashed. He's already asked me to come on to talk about Born Again, the Daredevil epic from and, the 80s. And the only reason why I haven't listened to that two-part episode is yeah. because, as you know, I've been under the weather. Right. We're doing this. My poor wife, Patricia, she's upstairs hacking her lungs out, and I'm fighting the cold. I can feel it in my yeah. system, but I've been fighting it off. But the only reason why I haven't listened to that two-part one is mm-hmm. because I want to really sit down and listen to it, and mm-hmm. even listen to it when I can pay attention to it, because right. I know it's got to be a goodie. That was a DC miniseries. I really didn't care In the too 90s. Much. Yeah, I really didn't care too much for it. That was one with Neron. Yeah. Gave all the supervillains superpowers. Well, we dissected over the two episodes, and among other things, I get to do my John Byrne impersonation extensively. You never pass up opportunity to do an impersonation. I love doing that stuff, man. Where do we get sued? Yeah. Yeah, Tom, this is John Byrne. I don't appreciate the way you talk about me. I'm suing your ass. For what? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, so we've done all of the... And if you want to give us a piece of listener mail, you can always send it to betterinthedark at earth2.net. That's betterinthedark at earth-2.net. Please, we love to listen to you. As you hear, we read everything we get. Mm-hmm. We read it even if you disagree with us. We've read plenty of emails yep. on air and past that disagree with us, and we're more than happy to listen to what you have to say and discuss it and respond. Mm-hmm. So now, Tom... Let's get into the meat and potatoes of what this episode is about. Well, when last we left the Rivals of Bond series, we endured. I use that word deliberately. The absolute hash Hollywood had made out of Modesty Blake. Oh, God, yes. The good news is the movies we're about to discuss here range from mildly more tolerable to actually actively good. The first thing we're going to talk about is actually our first true out-and-out spy spoof, which is, of course, the Dr. Goldfoot series created by Roger Corman and American International Productions in 1965 because, of course, they saw all the money that UA was making with James Bond and 20th Century Fox was making with Derek Flint and said, we want some of that money. Well, yeah, and also, as we were discussing in another episode, I don't remember which, but I'm sure your encyclopedic memory will bring up what episode it was. When a genre has run its course and yeah. it goes toward the end, it's just leaning toward comedy. Yeah. Such as the Universal monster movies of the 30s right. and 40s, when they started doing Abbott and Costello, oh, I mean, Frankenstein, and Dracula, yeah. and everything. The so Mummy. We get toward where we get more and more of these spy spoofs because right. they tried competing directly with the James Bond series, mm-hmm. and there was really no other series that really could compete with it yeah. and take over and make that type of money. So what they started doing was going in the other direction and said, let's make fun yeah. of this genre then. And right. Dr. Goldfoot. And, and this is one the of these. first one of these, and we're going to be doing a couple. Of these, because we're also going to do the Dr. Fu Manchu films when we get them all in a row. Yeah. Is the first of the Rivals of Bond that focuses primarily on the villain. If you want to call him that. Uh, <laughs> the nuisance, more like it. Yeah. Although it's funny because this one, he really is just a nuisance. 
Dr. Goldfoot has played brilliantly by Vincent Price. And I have to say yeah. one thing about Vincent Price. Vincent Price doesn't look like he's really having a chore doing this. He, yeah. he genuinely looks like he's having fun mm-hmm. in this one. And, and, oh, and he, he, really, he really just seems to be just having a ball in the second one. Yeah, oh, yeah, the second where one. He's yeah. like, where he gets a chance, he's like talking to the audience. Well, about, and he, yeah. And he's yeah. got the two Asian henchmen who are his straight men. Yeah. When we get to that, that's one thing that really struck me about the second one. Mm-hmm. Is that he breaks the fourth wall constantly. Yeah. He turns and he talks to the audience directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he looks like he's just having so I mean, much fun doing this. Who knows what the fuck Dr. Goldfoot's backstory is? We really don't know. We should mention that he's called Dr. Goldfoot because he wears these ridiculous gold-colored yeah. slippers that have tiny bells on yeah. at the end. Which means that he's incapable of sneaking up on you. But Dr. Yeah. Goldfoot... Okay, I should mention, first of all, that he is not the smartest of supervillains. Yeah. Here's a guy who has the technology to create androids that look sound, and I presume have all the physical characteristics of real women. He has these computers that can teach these androids, download all All the knowledge knowledge that is needed for their assignments. Right. He has all this technology, and he's not able to make money in the private sector? No. (laughs) What is his gig? What is his thing? Is it, I can take over the war? Because, of course, these androids are super strong, they're near indestructible. Yeah. I could take over a small Latin American country. I could rob 15 billion. No, his whole scheme in the first film is, I'm going to marry these robots off to rich people. To rich men, yeah. And then I'm going to get the money. Instead of just, let me sell the Android technology yeah, to the right. United States and make a billion dollars. Okay. Okay. I, or even, hello, Russia. Yeah. How I mean, would you like a hundred sleeper agents that are totally indetectable? Yeah, from human beings. Yeah. Duh, Dr. Goldfoot. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we should try to talk well, something about the plot. Well, first of all, the first, for what movie, it is. The first movie is Dr. Goldfoot and the, the Bikini, Bikini Machine. Machine. Directed by Norman Torek. Okay. I should mention, there's a lot of cute little touches in this movie yeah. that I didn't notice the first time I saw it, but then I noticed it around the second time. Yeah. This is at the opening credits, are done by Art Cloakie. Yeah, I was floored when I saw the opening credits because it's Art Cloakie with music by the Supremes. Yeah, Diana Ross and the Supremes who do the theme song, Dr. Goldfoot. Yeah, like you, because I prefer yeah. seeing the movie Cold, so right. I didn't look it up on Wikipedia mm-hmm. or Internet Movie Database. So I'm sitting there and I'm saying, yeah, that's a catchy little t-. I said, and I know yeah. the voice. And it's funny because the last time I saw it, I was a little kid on ABC, the 430 movie. That, right. This thing used to play all the time mm-hmm. when I was a kid. It was always, it seemed like every Friday they would right. put one of the Dr. Goldfoot movies on, the 430 movie. Right. And then it got to the end and it said, oh, Diana Ross is the Supreme. I said, yeah, I knew that, I knew that voice. The hairstylist in this movie was John Peters. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> John I mean, Peters. Back then, he's whispering in Susan Hart's ear, my dream is to make a movie with a giant mechanical giant spider. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I couldn't believe that. He did the hairstyle yeah. for Susan Ryan, John Peters. And of course, you got uh, Samuel A. Arkoff, yeah. the guys from AIP, Roger Corp. There's a lot of talent behind yeah. the respectable talent in this mm-hmm. movie. And of course, we got Frankie Avalon, right. the, the 60s version of Clay Aiken. And of course, <laughs> it uses the typical Roger Corman trick of, well, we've got these extra long shots from Pit and the Pendulum, so let's build a set piece around Dr. Goldfoot torturing one of the heroes in a replica of that so we can use... Just so we can use stock footage yeah. from it. Yeah, when he puts Dwayne Hickman in mm-hmm. the same thing, the right. Pit and the Pendulum, yeah. yeah. The plot for as what it is. Frankie Avalon, 
plays a, a sick man. A sick man, yes. He is an agent for <laughs> we know what it's called. Security for? Intelligence Commission. Commission yeah. or something like that, yeah. Yes, and that's the whole thing is like, I want to be a sick man. Yeah, that's the whole gag, folks. And he's attached to the San Francisco Bureau, which is composed of him and his uncle. Yeah. Who really doesn't want him around. He's absolutely not. And they're working in these really odd offices that are longer than they're yeah, wide. They're small little tiny... You know what they reminded me of? What? You've seen Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> you remember the office that Jonathan Price had in there? Yeah. Yeah, that's what that reminded me of. So, one day, Frankie Craig Gamble, who's... Yeah. Incidentally, he plays Craig Gamble, Dwayne Hickman, who's the other male lead, plays a character called Tom Armstrong. Right. The year before, they were in a film called Ski Party, and they played the same characters, only reversed. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Craig is having terrible luck. His last girlfriend just broke up with him. And he took her to a cafeteria and bought yeah. her a cheese sandwich for mm-hmm. lunch. Yeah. So he's not exactly a big spender. Right. But then he runs into Diane, played by Susan Hart. Who, I must say, is absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And she was probably, next to Vincent Price, my favorite performer in this movie. Because yeah. she looked like she's having fun as yeah. well, too. She looks like she's having a ball in this. And Diane is looking for Todd Armstrong. Right. And walks up to Frankie Avalon and goes, are you Todd Armstrong? But of course, Frankie is spinning with her. And he's like, no, no, I'm not. But I could be. He follows her around. And the first weird thing that happens is, of course, a car runs right into her. And she doesn't flinch. Yeah. But the person who ran into her is Todd Armstrong, who is right. a rich investment banker type. Played by Dobie Gillis himself. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Dwayne Hickman. Dwayne Hickman. And it turns out, though, that Diane had an ulterior motive for meeting Tart Armstrong, because she is Robot 11, a creation of Dr. Goldfoot, and who apparently sits in his converted funeral home all day, mm-hmm. and just constantly produces these gold bikini robot Robots, because he's got about a dozen of yeah. them, because at one point he says to Igor, who, by the way, once did assistant, yeah. who used to be a grave digger, mm-hmm. and he brought him back to life. Mm-hmm. To serve as his assistant. He says, okay, we'll bring him out. And it's about like two dozen of them. Yeah. And I'm saying to myself, well, obviously the guy doesn't have women problems. Because yeah. he can create his own and do whatever he say. If your man produced them things and sold them to every husband in yeah. America, in essence, he's created the Stepford Wife. Yeah. <laughs> by himself. Igor is played by Jack Mullaney, mm-hmm. and he is not... When you think Igor, you think a hunchback monstrosity. Yeah. He's probably the most handsome guy in the film. Yeah, well, <laughs> well handsome? What about Dwayne Hickman? I don't know. I'm not the person to judge that sort of thing. Oh, okay. The thing is, of course, that he's this straight, tall, good-looking guy mm-hmm. who wants to be a toady. That's the only thing in his mind that... Serving Dr. Goldfoot. But of course, he's your typical bumbling assistant. We should mention right here, folks, that we're not talking about high art here or high level of acting. However, if I can be serious for a minute, because I know I get emails about this all the time when people say, Oh, Dirk, why you recommend these old stupid movies? And people tell me that they can't get past the cheesy special effects or the style of acting. That's exactly why you should watch these type of movies because this is the type of acting that you don't see anymore. I look upon movies as this as like a cultural artifact in almost a way. I look at it and I see not only the music but the fashions and how women were looked at and how treated and how men viewed themselves. 
and the way the movie, the were technology. Filmed, Let's not forget where it was considered a really impressive thing to have a computer the size of a room. Exactly. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, me and Patricia, we were watching. I was watching down here. And she said, "Oh, well, what are you doing?" I said, "Well, I'm doing my homework." And she knows that yeah. I'm doing this for better than a yeah. dog. And I'm explaining to her about the plot of the movie. And she said, "Wow, now look at those computers. Did they ever think that computers would be laptop size?" Yeah, that I can tuck this thing under my arm, and it's probably more powerful than the computer in that movie. Exactly. Movies like this, are, to me, they're worth watching purely as cultural artifact right. because you can actually learn a lot about how people viewed themselves and their art and other things, technology, fashion, music, by looking at these movies. Mm-hmm. So Diane Bilks Todd of everything. Right. But he is kind of suspicious because, among other things, she changes from a southern belle to a Russian femme fatale at one key point. And he and Craig team up to investigate the mysterious Dr. Yeah. Goldfoot, which leads to them infiltrating his big funeral home-looking thing. Which apparently has a medieval dungeon yeah. underneath it, which, of course, goes back to what we say. This has a chance for Corwin to burn off the stock yeah, footage exactly. from Pit and the Pendulum, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of jarring at one moment because Dr. Goldfoot walks around in smoking jacket yeah. and a frilly shirt. And all of a sudden he's in that hood. Yeah. And all of a sudden the scene changes and he's got on the hood, he's got yeah. a black coat. You said, wait a minute, when did he have time to change his clothes? Exactly. It ends up in a chase up and down the hills of San Francisco. San Francisco is very good in this movie. Yeah. There's a lot of location shooting that, yeah, this was filmed in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. This yeah. wasn't on a back lot and we've just got stock footage yeah. inserted. No, they went to San Francisco and filmed it. They're running around on trolley cars. Right. They're driving yeah. up and down the hills. Well, San Francisco looks good in any yeah. movie. It's really. a very photogenic city, and mm-hmm. it surprises me that more people don't exploit it more the way right. that they exploit Los Angeles or New York. Right. Or even Chicago. And the thing I like about San Francisco has this, and this is something I was discussing with Doug Bookie. Okay. Because Doug Bookie and I were talking about some Avengers West Coast stuff recently. Mm-hmm. He was mentioning how one of the things that he likes is how I've been kind of like building up this whole superhero community on the West Coast. Right. That got to us discussing the brief run where Daredevil moved to San Francisco moved for right. about two years. Yeah, him and, and the Black said, Widow. That's exactly. The book was renamed Daredevil and, and the Black, Black Widow. Widow. Yeah. And the thing I loved about that idea is that it would be the perfect city for Daredevil because, of course, it's a city built on the side of a mountain. Yeah. Which means there's lots. Lots of levels for him to play. For him to climb. Yeah, yeah. And stuff him to climb up because unless Daredevil has stuff to swing. Yeah. I'm like Spider-Man. Spider-Man and Daredevil would be useless out in the yeah, Midwest. Exactly. And they, you can't take them someplace that they can't climb or swing. In one stuff. of the earliest, I remember this, because I still have this issue. One of the earliest issues where they're relocated, they're in an old mansion that the Black Widow bought with funds that she saved from all her years as a spy. There's this beautiful shot, and Gene Cullen does it wonderfully, of him swinging underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. It's like a full-page spread of Daredevil in the foreground mm-hmm. and the thing leading up to the towers mm-hmm. of the, and it just, it just looks so beautiful. It looks beautiful, yeah. San Francisco is always... There's a reason why Clint Eastwood set the Dirty Harry yeah. movies there. It's a great-looking city mm-hmm. to photograph it. And yeah, in this movie, surprisingly... That was one of my favorite parts of watching this movie, just watching the San Francisco locations. Mm -hmm. And you figure it wasn't that far from AIP's offices in Glendale. Right. But what I'm saying is that they could have just been lazy and went to a back lot and Mm -hmm. shot this thing. And nobody would have Oh, there is stuff that is on a back lot, obviously. Oh, yeah. the, The scene where Diane and Craig first meet. Oh, yeah. Some of it is there's enough location shooting that, to me, I can say they did make the effort and make mm-hmm. the time to go travel yeah. and do actual location shooting. What can I say? I yeah, love hey. location shooting. And I like it when people take the time to go ahead and do it. 
you, you hit upon something earlier when you said about how this film in particular is kind of a microcosm of how men viewed sex objects. What do they come out in? Just plain bikinis, gold lame, the hair is all a certain style. Mm-hmm. And all. I'm looking here at a review that somebody put on IMDb mm-hmm. where they make a connection. I totally believe that this is true between both the bikini machine women and the girl bombs, which we'll get to in the next film, and the fembots in the Austin Powers films. Yeah, I can totally see where this is where the idea came from. In this film, the sex objects are more of a glamour thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas if this film was made nowadays, they'd probably come out with really kind of like elaborate lingerie or something, or mm-hmm. maybe even naked, I don't know. I think it would be a lot trashier. Yeah, a lot sleazier, a right. lot sluttier. This is like what me and you were talking about early on when we were discussing the Power Girl. Yeah. Combo, and you were talking about cheesecake. That's what this is in this movie. This is cheesecake. It's yeah. not meant to be porn or anything sleazy. Cheesecake, to me, is having fun with sexuality. Right. Let's face it, fellas. It's fun to look at it's girls like, in bikinis. If, <laughs> if you look at it one way, this is just a giant burlesque get or a prettied up, tamer version of what they used to call nudie cutie movies from the 50s and early 60s. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest, this film does not have great depth to it. The basic reason for this film to exist is twofold. One, people like Vincent Price acting like Vincent Price. Mm -hmm. So let's give him Vincent Price capering around and making jokes and having fun. And two, men like watching women in bikini. So I'm not going to deny it. I really get upset when people start, because when you look at a movie like this, you can't look at it from our sophisticated 20th century point of view. Yes, it's mm-hmm. not a very sophisticated movie, but it was a less sophisticated time, let's face it. Yeah. So, oh yeah, well, women are objectified, and they're this and that. Well, they're still not. You're honestly going to sit there and tell me we still don't objectify women. You're going to look at these beauty pageants we have right. with 8 and 9 and 10 year old oh, girls that's just creepy man that we dress up to look like 18 20 25 year old women and right. tell me we still don't objectify women so don't give me that bullshit okay but back then because this was less sophisticated I think it was a little bit more innocent it as was, well I know that this is a f- comparative word that I'm going to use that people look at me like I'm funny it's a sweet film. It is. It is such a harmless movie. Is it a good movie? No, it's not a good movie. No. It's not. But it's harmless. It's inoffensive. It doesn't bother anybody. And it's just a bunch of people having fun. That's what it is. You can see Dwayne Hickman's having yeah. fun. And you know what I like about him and Frankie Avalon? These guys knew that they were never going to be Academy Award winners. Yeah. They knew they were never going to be critical favorites. And they were all right with that. They were doing what made them happy. Yeah. And they made movies that made people happy. Mm-hmm. And you can see that. And they were okay with that. You don't have the angst. I mean, Avalon, I think, was perfectly happy being part of the Roger Corman Beach Party stock players. And you see that even in movies like Grease, yeah. later on, he made fun. And later or, on, even he, more importantly, Back to the Beach. Back to the Beach, yeah. He deliberately made fun of that yeah. thing. And the interviews I've seen with him, he always said... He never had nothing but a good time doing that. Yeah, that's all it was. There's no real threat in this film. There's no real darkness. It's just a farce with people running around in bikinis and Vincent Price in his little freaking fetish wear. <laughs> they never explain why he's wearing those little Turkish tap shoes, do they? They never explain that. They never really explain what he hopes to accomplish by marrying or except for getting their money. Yeah. But it seems to me, wait a minute, in order to create all of this... You had to have a shitload of money in the first place. It's what I like to refer to as the Lex Luthor syndrome, Mm. where you have a great mastermind who builds a super powerful robot to rob a bank. 
But if you had all the money to build the super powerful robot, why didn't you just not build a super powerful robot and, and keep the money? the money? Yes. Yeah, exactly. This is what I never get about these guys. Just spend the money that you had to spend a billion dollars to build a damn robot. Right. Just spend the billion dollars. Exactly. But there you go. Go to Las Vegas. I mean, get drunk, get laid. Go ahead. At least when we get to the second film, which we're about to, he's got a definite plan. He's got a definite goal in mind with the second film. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit more meat on the bones. On the bones, yes. Yeah, as it is. This one... And more importantly, he gets somebody else to pay for the bikini machine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is just strictly, it's an out-and-out farce, but it's inoffensive. If you guys want to watch it, it's on Netflix. Me, personally, I would say if you're a Vincent Price fan, watch it. And if you want to be comprehensive mm-hmm. and watch all of the man's work, yeah, by all means, watch it. Let me put it this way. If... You're at home on a Saturday afternoon right. and you're not doing anything else and you really don't have nothing else to watch. By all means, Netflix it and check it out. So, the film did, I guess, okay. I think it was always meant to be kind of like a B-picture on a double bill or oh, something yeah. else. Yeah. What was surprising was how much money it made overseas. Yeah. So much so... And see, you get to the interesting part yeah. of this story, my friend. An Italian production company said, Why are you not making no more Dr. Goldfoot movies? We are like the Dr. Goldfoot. And on top of that, it's like, we got these two really stupid comedians that nobody really likes. Oh, yeah. I bet you if they were in a Dr. Goldfoot movie, people would like them. And more importantly, they said, we got a plenty of lira. Yeah. <laughs> and we want to spend. So, James <laughs> Nicholson and Arkoffin said, Nicholson said, hey, okay, sure. We'll put up a little bit of money. You put up a, a lot, lot of, of money. money. <laughs> we'll give you one of our stars, and we'll give you Vincent Price. You cast everything else. And you shoot the whole movie. And you shoot the whole movie. Give us the distribution right. For America and other territories, I'm sure they've had yeah, there. you shoot the movie in Italy because that was part of the yeah. package deal. The Italians wanted it shot in, in Italy. Italy so that, of course, they wanted they to focus. focus. Right. And in fact, it's funny. I'm looking here at the IMDb page. You'll notice this is the Italian movie poster. Right. What does it emphasize? Well, the two dumb Italian comics. But that was the whole thing about yeah. them. They figured that they could expose these guys to an American. Yeah. And people will want to see more of them. Because for some reason, they thought these two assholes were brilliant comedians. Yeah. And when I watched this movie, I said, I don't know whose son-in-laws they are. Remember? Oh, I'm trying to remember. There were these guys, and they actually made a couple of movies. Petrello, and what was the other guy's name? They were obviously meant to be like a fourth or fifth Xerox of Lewis and Martin. Was it Petrello and Lane? No, I was thinking of. Remember these guys? They were supposed to be the fourth and fifth Xerox of Abbott and, and Costello. Yeah. And they made a couple of movies themselves. Because you had all these different yeah. comedy teams. But I think I know who you're talking about. I think I remember seeing a movie with those guys. Their, their most famous film was a really bad science fiction film called Invasion of the Star Creatures. Yeah, I think I know who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But these guys, and you can tell by the amount of screen time yeah. that these guys have. Although I have to admit, I did find the opening gag that they have mm-hmm. where you think that there's some like important general or police yeah. officials and it turns out that the doormen now I laughed at that one I have to admit <laughs> and they're walking down the street and they're marching and I thought well these guys must be military especially if they've been talking about Chinese yeah. spies yeah they're in the park looking yeah. through the yeah and then they get to the hotel and they're going in and then the guy comes up to him and says if you are late one more time for yeah. and then you realize they take the hats off and they open up the door for me, and then yeah. you realize that the doormen but, but yeah these two comedians Franco Franchi and Chiquillo Ingrazia, okay. otherwise known as Franco and Chico, they're not very good. They're not. They're not funny. Which to me, if you're going to call yourself a comedian, then I think it's kind of a prerequisite of the job that you be yeah. funny. They're not good actors. 
Mm-hmm. They're just way too broad. You know what it is? They're like solid movie actors in a movie with sound. Oh, God. The face is that that cheeky old bastard pulls all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah well, this is what I'm saying. You had to do that type of exaggeration yeah. when you were in a solid movie. Mm-hmm. But not when you're in... And for some reason... Mario Baba, which is the only directing gap in this that I'm really going to take him to task yeah. for, he insists on giving us close-ups of this moron yeah. pulling those faces. And the scene where he disguises one of Dr. Goldfoot's robot oh. women, I could have lived without that scene. Some things you cannot unsee. So, I um, could have lived without Apparently, Frankie Avalon took one look at this prospect <laughs> and said, no, nah, man, no, nah, I ain't going down that road. He said, I don't need the Italian vacation. No, he did. He took the money that he gave for the last yeah. movie and said, I can take my own Italian vacation. So, just like if you were trying to get an American Idol winner in your dinner theater production of Grease and you couldn't get Clay Aikman, so you got Taylor Hicks. Yeah. They couldn't get Frankie Avalon to come back, so they got Fabian. Has Bill Dexter, mm-hmm. who also, much like Craig Gamble, has problem with women, mainly because he's got a case of the hands. And he's also a sick man. Yes. Because they run the same gag right, in this yeah. one. I think when he starts out, he's actually been fired from sick because, of course, he's molesting women too much. I think the one thing that's really interesting about this movie, Dr. Goldfoot is the only character, really, from the first yeah. movie that's in this one. Nobody that was in the first movie is in this one except exactly. for surprise as Dr. Goldfoot. Mm. And that's the only carryover in that he's fighting another sick agent. We do learn in a voiceover before the opening credits that even though that very evil, evil man, Dr. Goldfoot, supposedly died, thus saving lots and lots of millionaires from being parted from their money. He actually survived. Yeah. And we see him operating in Rome. I think it's like on top of a fairground, right? Yeah. With two Oriental assistants, one played by Moa Tahi... Mm-hmm. Playing hard job. The, the female assistant was actually kind of cute. And you know something? They didn't have the guts to go ahead and do what I would have did. What? You know what I would have called her? What were you called? Hand job. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have the guts. Yeah. <laughs> but hand job, I need you. The only problem I had, because I think she's. Yeah, she's you know she's, you want to laugh. I think she's wicked cute. I do too, yeah. But most of the film, she's disguised in the general's uniform. Yeah. That obviously is two sizes too big for her. Oh, yeah. They keep her covered up. Although there is one part in the lab when she is wearing a low-cut outfit that we do get to see some of the assets that no doubt got her the job. What's been going on is that generals from NATO are blowing up. Kaboom. Yes. And somehow, our good friend Bill and the two idiots... Franco and Chico, mm-hmm. discover that Dr. Goldfoot has entered into an insidious alliance with Red China. Yeah, and like you said earlier, this has an actual plot yeah. in which Dr. Goldfoot is working to form a war between Russia yes. and China. Yeah. He just got off the phone apparently with Blofeld. Yeah, you know, I yeah. could do that. So the idea is he's agreed to set America and Russia against each other mm-hmm. so that nuclear war will break out and when all the fallout clears... Red China can just walk in yeah, China will be and right. take over for everything. And all Dr. Goldfoot wants is Australia. That's all. Why is it that whenever there's these world conquest things that a mastermind is kind of subcontracting to a higher power, mm-hmm. they always want Australia? Yeah, that was the old Lex Luthor thing, like you said. Mm-hmm. They all want to be land barons. So what he's doing is he's built a new form of Bikini Machine Woman. The Mm. Girl Bomb. The Girl Bomb. Apparently there's a trigger in their lips, and when Mm. they kiss somebody, 
Kaboom! And his plan is he's destroying all of the NATO generals except for one who happens to not look uncannily like him. Who's a- They're going to kill him, then he's going to step in pretending to be that general and thus authorize the dropping of a nuclear uh, weapon, nuclear weapon on, on Moscow. On the Kremlin, yeah. So. That's actually a scheme that you could probably yeah. see working in a straight spy movie. Exactly. This one, I think, works much better as a spy spoof than the first one. Mm-hmm. The first one has some kind of vague trappings of spy movies. Mm-hmm. This one is a spy movie played as a satire. The first one is really just a series of skits loosely strung together. Mm-hmm. This one does have an actual plot that leads to a conclusion. There's a lot of nice little touches of it. Like when Fabian, yeah. as the sick agent, first runs into Dr. Goldfoot. Now, of course, he said, wait a minute, don't I know you? Yeah. So he recognizes him. I think he's pretending to be like a musician of some sort. Yeah. Bob's him off and says, oh no, I'm so-and-so. Right. And he's like, no, nah, you look like, he says, I know this guy from someplace. And then he realizes later on it's Dr. Yeah. Goldfoot. But of course, his agency doesn't believe him. Oh, Dr. Goldfoot. Not yeah. even Colonel Doug Benson, his old friend who mm-hmm. runs the European Bureau of Science. Right. Which, of course, through some weird, improbable goofiness, turns out the two idiots are recruited into SICK. Yeah, through a bit of over-convulated plotting that when I was watching this, I say, even for this type of movie, that doesn't make any sense. But then again, like we have already stated, this movie was pretty much yeah. designed as a vehicle to push these two Italian comics. And I'm pretty sure that when this movie was shown to the Italian audiences, yeah. it was their names that was above the well, title. Well, I mean, we just saw, yeah, I just, yeah, I just the, saw the poster, yeah. Where it's just the two comics carrying a big nuclear bomb. These guys are just dreadful. Oh, They just Lord. bring the movie down Every time they're on screen. Oh, God, they're just... But we do have the delightful performance of Vincent Price, who, as we yes. said earlier, takes every opportunity... I mean, there is one part of the This movie- is definitely the film where you kind of say that he's incidental character in the first film. He's the star! Yeah! There's these great moments when he's doing something even yeah. the fairest thing. He actually turns and grins at the audience. He and grins like, at us like... Explain what he's doing. He's having so much fun yeah. being a bad guy. You can't help but like Dr. Goldfoot in this movie. Now, since Bill is no longer affiliated with Sick, he has to ally himself with Rosanna, played by Laura Antonelli. Who is no Susan Hart. I think she's actually really, really wicked cute. Really? Yeah. I like Susan Hart, but you know, his own. She gets to play herself, and she gets to play a girl bomb. A girl bomb, yeah. Well, there's that bizarre moment where the girl bomb, Rosanna, shows up in Bill's apartment, and something happens to her, and she starts going in fast motion. Is that the point where she falls apart? Yeah, where yeah, she falls yeah, apart. okay. Ultimately, this ends up being a very weird, very extended chasing that goes from the streets of Rome to a fairground where Mario Bava is playing an angry customer that's following them around everywhere, yelling at them. Yeah. To a balloon, to an airplane. The thing I gotta say about this film, once again... Not a great film. But you got to appreciate something that just has the balls to just make shit up as it goes along and not apologize. That's what you get from this movie. It's like they just showed up to shoot every day. Yeah. Okay, well, what are we going to do today? And then they figured out, okay... Because all this weird crap that just happens. The whole thing around the 120 mark where Mario Bava's chasing them around the fairground with the little, like, chipmunk voice coming out of his mouth. Right. And then there's, during the whole sequence that they're in the balloon, they actually do do the silent movie thing where they have the title cards. Yeah. nobody's talking. I wonder if there actually was a script. I gotta tell you, I wonder if beyond a certain point there was just no script. It was just Mario going like, well, what do you want to do today? Yeah. You want to go in a balloon? Let's go in a balloon. There's a thing where they can't bring the balloon down, and they actually pass angels. Yeah. And the angels are giving them the finger yeah. and doing it. Oh. Well, it's such a weird, weird, 
weird movie. And there's one thing that I want to also mention too, yeah. since we're talking about Mario Bava. Because we've talked about how the Italian directors and Argento kind of perfected this into an art form where they would take old film stock that nobody else wanted and that's what they shot on yeah. and that gave their movies a unique look mm-hmm. like nothing else. When I was watching this movie, and even Patricia knows it, she said, this looks different. She said, the color looks different from color that you're used to in other movies. It's a difference that when you look at, it's a little bit more, what I like to call that hyper-realism. Like, the green is green. Really vivid. But it's really, really good. There's like a vividness about all the colors. Right. Blue is like blue. Red is like red. It kind of contributes to what I think, because let's face it, this is a live-action cartoon. That's the point that Chico and Franco wear these bizarre suits yeah. through most of the film that no human being would be caught alive wearing and up. striped pants with checker jackets yeah. and stuff like oh, that oh lord it just seemed to be there's like a, a sense of just what the fuck to this entire movie yeah well what are we gonna do today I think we ought to do this or do that they have the wonderful cat fight at the, and there's a part where they're in the airplane all the characters in there yeah. and they're fighting and they're trying to stop Dr. Goldfoot from dropping the bomb the girls get into a fight and they're ripping each other's clothes off and the guys stop fighting yeah. the they're ripping each other's clothes off but, well yeah no, if Lauren Kelly and this Mahatoe girl were ripping their clothes off in front of me, I'd stop whatever yeah, I was Yeah, I mean, all the guys stopped. Wow. And then just, oh, man. And for some reason, Vincent Price is wearing an eye patch. Well, because of the general he's replacing had an eye patch. Yeah, but doesn't the eye patch keep switching? During of course. His <laughs> because what the fuck? <laughs> it keeps switching. What minute, what sees on the left eye? Yeah. And you look and say, wait a minute, isn't it on his right eye Continuity. Now? We've and watched he, enough Italian cinema to know continuity is not a strong point. Then, when he set the plane to go and he's locked all of the controls so they can't move it. He actually jumps out the plane not with a parachute but with an umbrella. Yeah. (laughs) This one, even with Franco and Chicchio, Uh who I could not stand, I enjoyed this one a lot more because there is just this sense of strangeness. Yeah. Throughout the film. Also, I mean, like, they never explain why Colonel Benson wears a pink military uniform. Yeah. You kind of like, wait a minute. But... This is just the universe that you're presented with. Yeah. And you just have to accept it on its own terms. If you're not, don't even start watching the movie. If Dr. Goldfoot the Bikini Machine was a universe gone silly, this was a universe gone stark raving insane. Yeah, you're right. On some level, and I think that's probably due more to the direction yeah. of Mario Bava, who was a pretty wild and out there guy himself, as we're mm-hmm. going to see in the next movie. Oh, yes. You could watch this movie as a warm-up for the next one that we're going to talk about. Because it's definitely in that same yeah. type of vein. This is just a totally insane universe, and you just have to accept it. If you're not going to accept it, don't even watch it. The sad thing is, I think a lot of people would find this impossible to get through. Because it is so totally without logic. It just goes from crazy thing to crazy thing to crazy thing to crazy thing. But if you think you can handle it, this one I recommend... But again, as a cultural artifact, yes, I do agree watching it. If you're a Vincent Price fan and want to just watch all the man's work, yes, watch it. I particularly recommend both of these movies. If nothing else, Vincent Price looks like he's having a ball yeah. doing it. Not if you're a Fabian fan. <laughs> and I'm wondering how many people out there that are going to listen to us scratching their heads and saying, who's Fabian? Who's Fabian? Yeah. Fabian was one of those... Well, he was the guy you get when you yeah. couldn't get Frankie Avalon. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the 60s, as almost a reaction to the British invasion where you had these artists who were coming out who were kind of scary. Granted, the Rolling Stones haven't been socially relevant since 1977. Right. But in 1963 or 64, when they were first coming out, they were kind of intimidating and strange. The Who. Right. The Kinks. 
my personal favorite of the, the British Invasion band. Almost like an overreaction. American pop music started coming out with these very, very safe teen idols. And Fabian was one of them. Well, also, you got to remember something else, too. The American music industry, God bless them, didn't want to lose all of this yeah. teen money going toward yeah. the Brits. They mm-hmm. wanted to have their own homegrown artists and their own teen idols mm-hmm. that teenage girls would spend their money on buying their records. They didn't want the Brits to get all that money. It's like when, how many times did the music industry try coming up with their own white rap when the rappers were making all this money? Vanilla Ice right. was their first attempt. Thank God when Eminem came out, they fell on their knees and said, thank God we got well, it right. The, the, the <laughs> funny thing is that, yeah, there was this artificial kind of hip-hop influenced white music on one hand. Right. But then you had this genuine strain, and Eminem is probably the most famous, but you also have people like Bubba Sparks. The Beastie Boys. The Beastie, well, the Beastie Boys are like the grandfather of this. Yeah, you were exactly people who right. genuinely grew up in a hip-hop environment. Right. Who genuinely appreciated and understood the music. Exactly. And were doing safe safe hip hop hip hop no that was for people like crisscross you're right they were these little kids that yeah. wore their clothes backward ooh aren't they so cute yeah. <laughs> these were the people the who house were, of pain yeah also, oh yeah, of course hey yeah I, the thing I love about the house of pain is that they were probably the only Celtic hip hop band yeah. ever and then they put out two albums what happens their lead singer Everlast mm-hmm. finds Islam <laughs> And becomes a blues singer. You can't make this up. <laughs> this is the sort of stuff you can't make up. And the thing is, is that he's a good blues singer, too. Yeah. Well, he was a good rapper. Yeah. He was a good rapper. Just, it just amazes me. Yeah. Fabian was one of these supposedly cookie-cutter safe teen idol. And he did not have the success some of the other safe teen idols he, had. He, he was, like, moderate. Yeah. I would say. If you couldn't get Frankie Avalon, you went yeah. by Fabian. Frankie Avalon was a teen idol who had an actual career for a while in motion picture. First right. of all, he was the king of teen idols. Let's yes. put it that way. He was at the top of the pyramid. But he nobody was the king could of the touch him. Yeah. Nobody could touch him. Right. It's a strange film. Okay, I do want to say one other thing. Go right at you first. Maybe because, of course, they could spend more money because, of course, Italian lira at the time was weaker as opposed to American money. There are a lot more women in this film. Yeah. There are shots of three, four dozen women doing calisthenics. Yeah. They have one great scene. And the end. That's all the ending credits yeah. are. These women doing calisthenics. They reminded me of that, well, now famous yeah. thing where they have the Malaysian prisoners doing the thriller day. Yeah. <laughs> I said, that looks familiar. Yeah. It's definitely a different feel, too. Even down to the music, you have the Sloopies, whoever the hell that is, mm-hmm. doing the kind of wah-wah theme song in this one. N- yeah, not as memorable as the one from the first one. Yeah, the, 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 by the Supremes, but... The hey. Supremes one makes you want to jump up and dance. This one yeah. just makes you want to go, what? Now, let me ask you something. Yeah. How do you feel about this movie ripping off the ending of one of your favorite movies? <laughs> Doctor Strange, Strange Love. Love. Yeah. It's a satire, so I can just imagine it as being part of the, hey, look, wink, wink. Yeah. Yeah. Because when they had the thing with right. two guys driving, I said, oh. Much like my Tony was called Hard Job as a wink, wink. Yeah, to J.D. Ryan. Yeah. But again, this is a harmless movie. Exactly. It's very indicative of that cute little mild sex comedy. Yeah. That they used to do in the 60s without the kind of icky scariness of things like Under the Yum Yum Tree. It's not smarmy. Yeah. It's got an underlying sleaziness to it. Bava did Dr. Goldfoot in 1966. And right. the girl bombs. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't quite done with... Okay, admittedly, I think that we kind of stretched 
the definition of spy movie a little bit to include this one, but we wanted to because we love it so much. Yeah, this movie would have probably fitted more into the thing we did on the Pulp Heroes. Yeah. We did with our good friend Ron, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Actually, Tom and I had talked about including it into the second part that we're going to do with Rob, but yeah. we just didn't want to wait. Right, exactly. <laughs> but you look at it. This is a film about a character who topples a government. Yeah. Who has a tricked-out automobile, mm-hmm. who has a super-secret underground Ground lair. One of the best ones I've ever yes. seen. He has all the trappings. You could have taken this character and dropped him in the middle of Diamonds Are Forever, and he would have fit right And in. he would have been right at home, yeah. Or one of the Derek Flint films. Matter of fact, if you put him in one of the Matt Hill movies, he'd have made it better. Yeah. We are talking about Danger Diabolic. 1968. Which is based on, if my memory serves me correct, and if not, I'm sure you will be good enough mm-hmm. to correct me, my friend, a French comic book yes. character? A French comic book character which had been created by two little old ladies, believe it or not. Really? And at that time was very popular in Europe. He was so popular that didn't he spawn a whole bunch of lookalike yeah. characters? Although, of course, an argument can be made that Diabolic was himself a rip-off slash homage of Fantomas. Fantomas, yeah. The pulp supervillain that was the star of a very popular, very long-lived series of novels in the 20s and 30s. And actually, Fantomas is still around today. New stories are being mm-hmm. written by him. There's a French publisher that, much like Airship 27, yeah. Ron Fortier's own publishing house, did doing the same thing. Pulp characters from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Yeah. Particularly French and European pulp characters. Mm-hmm. They've got writers that are writing new stories right. about them today. A writer that you're familiar with from our fan fiction association, yeah. Travis Hills. Ah. He's done a couple of Phantom stories. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how the American pulp tradition usually focuses on the hero. Mm-hmm. The French pulp tradition usually focuses on the bad uh, yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. Which that, is why there's so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> the bad guys are the hero. Exactly. Yeah. And don't get us wrong, this film, Diabolic, is the hero. Starring John Philip Law has yeah. Diabolic. Supposedly, because I listened to the highly recommended commentary track, Mm-hmm. by John Philip Law on the DVD that came out about two years ago. On it, he said, well, I got this call from my agent, and he said, I was up for this role, Diabolic, so I looked at a typical comic, and I noticed he had these really, really big eyebrows. So throughout the audition process, and when I did the interview, I kept moving my eyebrows. Mm-hmm. And apparently it worked! And that's one thing I like about the character, yeah. first of all, because he's got my second favorite costume out of any costume characters, because... Everything is completely covered Covered. up, except for his eyes. Right. And I love the fact that he's got, like, different color outfits for different tasks. Yeah, but he traditionally wears that black, all-over, skin-tight outfit, which, of course, he doesn't leave any fingerprints. Mm -hmm. He doesn't leave any DNA behind. Much like Spider-Man, who, to me, has got the perfect costume, because everything is covered up. This guy, you can tell he's a thief, because he's got everything covered up. he gets more out of his eyebrows than any actor ever. Well, I actually think that probably why, because John Philip Lord does have yeah. very expressive eyes, I think that probably had more to do with it than anything else, because they said you're going to have to rely on your eyes a lot to do yeah. that role. So they had to pick somebody who could express a lot of emotion with their eyes, and he does that very well. So anyway, Diabolic is this feared thief. He's not just a thief. He's a super thief. Yes. This guy could put the Taj Mahal in his back pocket and walk away from whatever cops hear that he's around, that he's in their town and they start shitting themselves. Something's going to be missing. Yeah. <laughs>
And you see how worried the police are in that first sequence where you see 15 different motorcycle cops. Yeah. And armored truck all designed to and foil. helicopters, machine yeah. guns, guard doors. Yeah. Everything they can think of. But it doesn't work. <laughs> nope. Because <laughs> he's diabolic. Actually, you know what I like appearing in this movie to? What? It's a Roadrunner cartoon. <laughs> Think of Diabolic as the Roadrunner and the cop that keeps chasing him as the coyote. Ginkgo. Right. Inspector Ginkgo. But this is a high-tech Roadrunner. I kind of wonder if the Monkey Punch, the Japanese artist, created Lupin the Lupin, Third. Lupin, yeah. If, because he's made it very clear that Jigen, the gunfighter, who yeah. is Lupin's best friend, you look at Lupin's drawing, because Lupin's drawn with those very big eyebrows. Yeah. you got to wonder if Monkey Punch saw this film before he was asked to create I would probably say he did because Lupin is not as on a grand scale right. as, as Diabolic. Yeah, yeah, because this guy, he even tells the cops what he's going to steal. He says, yeah. listen, I'm going to walk in and I'm going to steal everything that's in the Bank of England. Yeah. And he does it. He goes ahead and does it even after he's told him. Lupin isn't on that grand scale, yeah. but he's kind of in that Yeah, I mean, arena. I just wonder if in interviews, Mon- I wish I knew what the guy's real name is. This was obviously a student. And Monkey mm-hmm. Punch said that he based Jiggin after Derek Flint. Oh. Oh, okay. Jiggin is supposed to be James Coburn. I can see that. So you can almost see Lupin and the female assistant yeah. has Diabolic and Eva. Yeah. And we should probably say something about Eva. We should. Oh my god. Can I get it? Oh my god. This woman. And her name was Marissa Mel. I don't know if she much of anything more. But after you see that, she didn't have to do anything else. (laughs) This is what I keep saying. If I was a superhero or one of these super criminal type, I'm not going to pick some little kid for my assistant. This is going to be my assistant. Oh, my gosh. Or like Lex Luthor from the first movie when he had Miss Teshmacher. Now, see, that's going to be my assistant. She is... And I know people are going to think, oh, it's Tom going hyperbolic again. She is one of the most... Beautiful women. She is. I think I've ever seen. She is. She is just so distinctive and she's so. Not only she's Dahlia Lavi level. Not only is she Dahlia Lavi level beautiful, she just exudes mm. sex. Yeah. It's pretty clear you have only one thing on your mind when you're looking at her. Yeah. There's only one thing you can't have. I mean, there's that scene where they're in the headquarters mm-hmm. after they've had the sex party on top of all the money. Yeah, okay. and they, yeah. they cut to her in that weird-looking psychedelic shower, the round, clear, kind of pebbled glass thing, mm-hmm. and you can definitely see her shape through it. And you just, oh, please, please, just open the door, open the yeah, door. Yeah, yeah, because they tease you with that, and we should mention that the sets in this movie are totally astounding. Mm-hmm. I love it. Again, it's Mario Bava doing a live-action comic book, but back then, I don't think there was anybody that did it better than him. You felt like you were looking at a comic book. On but the DVD, was- there is a rather lengthy documentary where people who put together the DVD interview Steve Bissett. And Steve Bissett shows concrete evidence mm-hmm. of how Bava took actual panels, much like Robert Rodriguez did with Sin City, mm-hmm. much like uh, Zack Snyder did with Watchmen, and used them as the story board, storyboards the story board for the movie. I can believe movie. that. Yeah, um, just from looking at the movie, yeah. If there's one thing that kind of doesn't fit, it's Terry Thomas. 
Oh, yeah. kind of yeah. looks like he walked in from the Batman series. Well, you know what? I would be willing to bet, even mm-hmm. though I don't know any background on this movie, and maybe you can verify this, mm-hmm. I'd be pretty willing to bet that there was some English money that was in this movie, and that's why he's in there. I think it was something like De Laurentiis wanted a more famous name to Americans that they could just slap yeah, on Yeah, right. Because uh-huh, yeah. he's not in there for very long. He's not right. really like a guy that... But I'm saying you've got that one memorable scene where he's giving the speech about, I'm getting a hard line on Diabolic. Meanwhile, Diabolic and Eva are in the audience. They open up that weird-looking can and say, hallucinogenic gas. Yeah, yeah. I love the fact that it's actually... That it actually says hallucinogenic gas. gas. Yeah. But usually, back then, when you see those type of movies, and you see, well, why is he in this movie? It's pretty much a given that there was financing from an English theater, or they wanted to market it to English audience Mm -hmm. or American audience, and that's why. Yeah. Like we were talking about with the Dr. Goldfoot movie, that that's why those bumbling Italian comics were in it. Because, right. And, of course, we should also mention that Diabolic is so scary that the cops and the mafia collaborate. Yeah, yeah. They actually get together and they say, listen, we gotta... Because Ginko actually goes to Valmont, who's played by the villain of Thunderball, Adolfo Celli. Adolfo Celli, yeah. To make a deal with him and rub him out. Mm-hmm. We'll worry about our beef later, yeah. more, but we gotta get this guy. And of course, it should be mentioned that Diabolic doesn't discriminate. He steals from anybody. So he's stolen from the mafia as well. And they're losing profits as well also. So it's in their vested interest to get rid of him as well. I love this movie. It's, it's just, it's totally whack. It's even more Bava insane than The Girl Bombs. Oh, absolutely. Because he brings more of himself. And hell, at one point, to it. but because Diabolic blows up the various banks mm-hmm. in this, they never, I don't know, say it's Rome. Mm-hmm. Or it's France or where it is in Europe. It's just somewhere in Europe. <laughs> but he effectively destroys the economy yeah. of yeah. this country. Right. By just destroying all the banks. He just blows up all the banks and say, oh, what the hell? Man, this is, and also I want to point out, and I know that Desk pointed this out in Dread Media, Enrico Morricone, who does the score, oh, I love this score. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love this score. I remember Rob Zombie when I watched this mm-hmm. movie because, as we mentioned so many times, he used to host the TCM, the underground movies. And this is where I remember I last saw this movie. And, of course, being a musician himself, he made a point. He said, yeah. listen to the music score in this movie. It's Ennio Morricone. And, of course, if you yeah. know anything about movies, then we need to say no but more. But it's not when you say Enrico Morricone. You think of... And we will fight. And the, the way he used choral work and unusual instruments mm-hmm. to make those spaghetti westerns sound like nothing you ever heard before. Right. This is Enrico Morricone getting in touch with his inner jazz guy. Yeah. And it's well, so much fun. Yeah, well, that's kind of natural because at the time period that this movie was made, what was the overriding mm-hmm. musical influence all over the world? It was jazz. And the French have always been in love with jazz. That's why we had, back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, you had so many black jazz artists. Why did right. they go over there? Because the French were crazy about yeah, jazz. Yeah, because the French actually liked can, them. It can be argued that the French had an appreciation for jazz long before it caught on here in America, mm-hmm. which it didn't until the 60s, the time period we're talking about. You had your coffee yeah. houses, you had the beatnik. Mm-hmm. That's when jazz really caught on. Yeah. Right? There's that one musical cue, and I just love that during that, that chase, where it's like, it's just so strange. And it's just, just endless shots of John Philip Law in the outfit yeah. with his eyebrows just going. Yeah, just wiggling eyebrows, yeah. just driving, yeah. It's just like looking up. This film has such an influence. I've mentioned before the Beastie Boys video for Body Moving where they took 
mm-hmm. clips from Diabolic got a Mike D dressed up as Diabolic. Really? And incorporated I've... themselves into the movie. Oh, i got to check that out. Oh. I've probably seen it, but it's been so long. It's so... So much fun. And Mm. the thing is, I think, with this movie is because, for some unfathomable reason, Best Brains Productions Mm -hmm. decided to use this as one of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 films. I have no idea why. Well, now, granted, this was during the period where they were being financed by Sci-Fi Channel. But then again, I never got Mystery Science Theater 3000. I know everybody's telling me, oh, man, what are you talking about? That was so brilliant. And I said... That's not funny. Me and my friends used to do the same thing at 42nd Street. Mm-hmm. We were saying we didn't get paid for it, and we were funnier. <laughs> the thing is, uh, contrary to what people keep say on IMDb, it was not the final episode. The final episode that they did was the episode that featured that really weird Maximilian Shell starring adaptation of Hamlet. Okay, but I think the thing was, the three years they were being produced by the Sci-Fi Channel, back before they became Sippy, they could only choose films that were sci-fi, fantasy-related. And this might have just been, it was like this and maybe two other choices that they didn't like as much. Okay, so they just went ahead and did this one. And did this one. It's far from the... But the thing is, is that because it was on MST3K, people automatically assume, oh, well, it's one of the worst movies ever. Yeah. Well, it's like when they did Mystery Science Theater, the movie, they did, what was it, The Silent Earth. But at least Mike Nelson was very upfront about it. We're not going to ask people to pay their money to see a bad movie. Well, that's true, too. Yeah, yeah. that's what he said. Yeah, he said, why did we yeah. go with this on Earth? Because we were realizing we were asking people to pay good money to see us this time. Right. This isn't a television production. Thus, we wanted to at least give them a movie that they wouldn't feel gypped watching. Right. Because in essence, you're asking people to pay good money to see a bad movie and not even make up their own jokes to hear you yeah. joke about a bad movie. So, you already get... Heaven forbid that the jokes are bad on top of yeah. it as well. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed Mystery Science Theater during... During its, was it eight, nine years run? There were seven seasons under Comedy Central. Mm. Yes, ten years, I think. Okay. Although one season was just six episodes long, which was the seventh season. I enjoyed it, but there's something kind of artificial about the joking. Mm-hmm. Usually, I always found the sketches they did on the half-hour marks mm-hmm. a lot more funny than some of the jokes did. Because, again, they kept watching the movies and writing the jokes. Everything was scripted there. Diabolic did not deserve to be... And see, actually, Mystery Science, thing, thing, the, the thing you really should do with that, just get yourself a bunch of guys, get them drunk, and just sit there yeah. <laughs> on the movie. And yeah, you know what I like? I just like the little sketches that they would do yeah. halfway through the movie. Now, those I Or the songs. Were, I love the songs. I love the do. songs. I love the theme song. Now, yeah. I thought those were pretty funny, but the actual thing where they were sitting there making comments, I didn't think those were funny. It's really a shame that they didn't hang on until the advent of the... The, the Sci-Fi Channel. Right. The, the Sci-Fi original. Do you really think that? No, no, not even that. Yeah. But directed dvd Because mm-hmm. I could see Mystery Science Theater doing a series of directed dvd releases. And, and then they're doing riff tracks right now. But the problem with riff tracks, of course, is that they're charging for MP3 download as opposed to FilmSack. Mm-hmm. Scott Johnson and Brian Ibbett's program where they talk about a film that's available on Netflix and they also produce film commentaries which are free. Oh, okay. I don't know. Some of the stuff, you look at it from a couple of years distance and it comes off as kind of mean. Where are we at now? 137? Yeah. Can I digress for a minute? Go ahead. Because we've always talked about this. Do you think that this is the year that we're ready to start doing this? Because we've talked about doing film commentary ourselves on and off yeah. o- over the years. That's one of the great 
brilliance of the age we're living in. Mm. You and I could pick something from Netflix, right? sync it up with the audacity, and just have a conversation. Which I'm sure a lot of people would like. And maybe, if they send us money, <laughs> yeah. we would send them a special MP3. Filthy lucre would do it for me. Well, start sending no suggestions, no, no, folks. Yeah, <laughs> don't send any suggestions. Okay. If you are interested, if you are willing to pay, let's say, $2, what do you think, $2? I don't want to ask them to spend a lot of money no, on this. Nah, they got to spend a whole bunch of money. To get a commentary on a movie as an MP3. There are a number of ways you can tell us you would like this idea. Yes. Before, actually, before we do that, we should sum up our thoughts about the three films we discussed oh, today. Oh, absolutely, yes. None of them are as out-and-out stinkers as the Modesty Blaze films we talked about. I would much rather watch Goldfoot than any of the Matt Helm films. Yeah, any of the Matt Helm films, any of the Modesty Blaze films, mm-hmm. yes. If I was going to be stuck on a deserted island for the rest of my life, mm-hmm. and you say, okay, you could take the Dr. Goldfoot movies... Or you could take the Matt Helm movies. Which would you take? Oh, I'd take the Goldfoot movies. So, okay. Because at least the Goldfoot movies are unapologetic. They're not nasty. See, that's the two things that really bother me about the Matt Helm films. One, they're lazy. Yeah. And two, they're very nasty towards their women. There's an underlying smarminess. Yeah. Yeah. That makes you feel kind of slimy exactly. while you're watching it. Yeah, I hear you. This is just good clean, harmless fun. There's a bunch of women parading around in bikinis who don't mm-hmm. like that. It's Vincent Price having fun. Yeah. It's his co-stars having fun. There's really nothing wrong with these movies. No, they're not must-see, and if you want to be a movie completist, you don't have to see it. Mm-hmm. You know what I say like this? And I tell people all the time, well, if you've subscribed to Netflix anyway, why not go yeah. ahead and watch them? You and know? as for Danger Diabolic, you must see this Now, movie. that one, I would say you have to see, yes. Yes. If you're at all vaguely interested in psychedelic cinema, in the history of the comic book Comic film, book films. Italian cinema. The history of Mario Bava. Yes. You have, you have to, to see... see. This movie. Yeah. The real movie, not the mystery science theater butchery of it. Nah, nah. This one you see. Now, it's not available on Netflix, right? It's, yes, it is. Okay, the DVD. But not on streaming. It's yeah. not on streaming. Okay, I just want but to make I this. would recommend you rent out the DVD. For the commentary. You've got this excellent commentary Absolutely. with John Philip Law. You've got this magnificent, fascinating interview with Stephen Bissett where he talks about the history of the character and tells you stuff about storytelling in comics and how it translates in this film. Okay. Plus, on top of that, you get another featurette with, of all people, Mike D talking about how much he loves this movie and why he decided to pay tribute to it in the Body Moving video. Oh. And you get to see the video, too. And you get to see the video. You know. you got all kinds of goodness It's right all there. kinds yeah. of goodness. You have to see this movie. Anything that appears on a Mystery Science Theater 3K automatically gets the taint of the stank. This does not deserve the change no, of the snake. No, it does not. This is true, absolute, insane. I would watch this long before I would watch Casino Royale again, the first oh, Casino Royale. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You absolutely. know, long before I would watch... I mean, yeah, both of them are psychedelic 60s yeah. movies, but this is more representative of that. Yes. For a change in The Rivals of Bond, we actually get to recommend everything. And how often does that happen? Not often. As long as you accept that the Goldfoot movies are kind of quaint artifacts, you'll do fine. Take off your sophisticated cap and say, oh, well, this is sexist or this is racist. Mm -hmm. Racist, I should mention for my African-American brothers and sisters out there, that there is a part in the first movie that is set in a club where the group C is Sam and the Ape Men. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're Fred Flintstone outfits. Fred Flintstone caveman outfits. A black group. And they're jumping up and down yeah. on stage. And I believe the drummer is actual leg bone as if yeah. it's a dinosaur. Yeah. So, for those of you who are a little bit more culturally sensitive than I am, be advised. That's in the movie. Now it's time for the administrative. Okay. Whether you love us, whether you hate us, whether you want to become our henchmen in our plot to rule the world. (laughs) (laughs) Sadly, though, you will not look like Eva Kent in Danger Diabolic. (sighs) Who sadly. We can only hope. Died early. Really? I was looking at her IMDb page. She died from complications due to childbirth. Oh, wow. In the early 90s. There are a number of ways you can reach us. You can send us an email at betterinthedark at earth2.net. That's betterinthedark at earth-2.net. Mm-hmm. You can join and post on our message board, which is at betterinthedark.proboards.com. You can become our friend on Facebook. Because we like friends. Yes, you just go to Facebook and search for Better in the Dark and join us up. We also have our own individual Facebooks, and we're not afraid to add people who like the show. You can follow our individual thoughts and fears and hopes on our live journals. Mine is Space Monkey Mafia, and his is Derek Ferguson's Notebook. Plus, Derek can be found at two other spots. There's the Ferguson Theater. The Ferguson Theater. That's on WordPress. Mm-hmm. Just do a search for it, and there I'm going to put on all of my movie reviews yes. that have been scattered all over the internet, three or four different places. But this one is my attempt to consolidate all of the ones that I've already done, and there will be new ones added. And if you join up on the Better in the Dark Facebook page, yes. as well as friend me on Facebook, You'll be apprised of that. Mm-hmm. Also, there is a blog that I just started that is devoted to my character Dylan, who has appeared in Dylan and the Voice of Odin, and Dylan, the Legend of the Golden Belt, and will soon be, if I get up off my lazy ass and finish the damn thing, Four Bullets for Dylan, which was supposed to be out this month. But I got sidetracked by a number of things, including a project that I'm working on with Joshua Reynolds that I cannot talk about right now, but at my earliest opportunity, you will hear about it. But... Go to the Dylan blog, and you will be kept apprised of all the news there. And I'm currently serializing Dylan and the Voice of Odin. Every week there'll be a new chapter. That's a nice free giveaway for you guys. And also you can go to pulpworkspress.com, where coming soon in a few months will be How the West Was Weird, Volume 2. Last I heard, Russ Anderson, who is the editor of the project, hello Russ, it's going to be June. As a matter of fact, you're going to have your story in. Both Tom and I are going to have stories in there. The deadline is March 31st. March 31st. Yes. Also, there may be, by the end of this year, Amazing Alternative Stories might finally come into being. And we I finished reading all the initial stories. I'm now looking at the rewrites that I've requested. Okay. And it looks like both Russ and Joel, there's a particular artist that I... Thought would be good for the yeah that Maddox guy oh yeah I looked at him because the name didn't hit yeah. me and I went and looked at it and I said oh yeah this guy this guy's great yeah the yeah. thing I like about his work is that he definitely will understand what the cover concept is I love that one he did he did one matter of fact he did one for Ron right. one of his Captain Hazard no ah, okay. the one with the caveman 
Mm-hmm. And it's like in New York, it's all covered yeah. in ice. Yeah. And the caveman is charging the guy with the machine gun. Good choice. And of course, if you're interested in following our fanfic adventures and are not going to insult fanfic on our forum, mm-hmm. which would not be a very good idea. Yes. Trust me. And let me say right now, I kind of take exception to that. We had an incident. It's the only time. We've had these boards for what, three years now? Yeah, we've had it for three years, and this is the first time that I felt it was necessary to ban somebody from the board. I did it because if you don't like something, that's fine. I'm not disputing anybody's right to dislike something. As I always say many times, that's why God is infinite wisdom mm-hmm. made us different. But one thing I don't tolerate is rudeness. If you don't like fan fiction, just say, I don't like it, I don't read it. Okay, fine, I understand that. I don't like rutabaga. I don't like okra, fine. But don't say, well, I don't read that shit. Mm-hmm. Or something else equally crude. I detest that sort of behavior. There are ways and to, I'm, and to I'm express not your displeasure of something exactly. without being exactly. nasty about it. Exactly. If you don't like it, you don't like it. Fine. Don't be crude and don't be nasty. Mm-hmm. That's all I ask. But End of sermon. If you're interested in seeing what Derek and I would do with the Avengers franchise over at Marvel, you can go to alteredvisions.com. Where a big event is about to start. Dun, dun, dun. Where, because I've already put in the first part. We're ramping up to that event right now. Yeah, Tom's working hard on it. Yeah. But we'll talk about it after we get off the air. So, I guess, until next time. Until you have to race against time to stop the eyebrows without a face from blowing up your house while an evil mastermind has replaced your wife with an exact duplicate in a gold bikini who will blow up. Go see that movie! Good night! Good night, God bless, thank you. Dr. Goldfoot is a dangerous man, but he does have his lighter moments. All right. Shut up. You've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas, DJ, and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to Michael Bailey of Views from the Long Box, Desmond Reddick of Dread Media, Brian of the Hammockus Podcast, Eric Frome, and of course, all the members of the Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com. Better in the Dark was shot on old decaying Technicolor film stock to produce really vivid Baba-esque colors, but since we're an audio podcast, we probably shouldn't have bothered. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, love letters, and pipe bombs to Better in the Dark at Earth2.net. That's Better in the Dark at Earth-2.net. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley, and why not leave us a review on iTunes? Hey, maybe you can even visit the Better in the Dark Central site at www.bitdsite.com. And don't forget to check out all the amazing music available at www.b-hyphen.com. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation in association with the Earth2.net community of podcasts. All material copyright, Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that contributions of cans of exhilaration gas, secret hideouts, tricked out cars, or anything else that might help us in our quest to rule the world are always welcome. Diabolic, the absolute gold-plated end. Ask Eva. Ha, 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 ha,